agree that you can't get in college. It's the sound of science. The sound of science. Science. Yes, another big thanks to the Brecky crew for starting off another Thursday morning. But stick around because coming up next is Discovery. And in this week's bumper edition, we review the film What the Bleep, which is a pretty whacked out film from the US about physics, spirituality and 35,000 year old people from Atlantis. And we talk to a fresh innovator about new software for cows. And of course, there's all the latest in science news. So stick around for Discovery. Welcome. 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 Stand and welcome. Hello, good evening and welcome to Discovery. 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 Listen to Discovery. Discovery. <gasps> Discovery. Discovery. Sounds like a lot of fun. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Now to the speeded up brain of a user, that sound lasts for four hours and sounds like this. Discovery. Uh, yeah. Yes, indeed, and welcome to another fun-filled, science-packed half-hour of Discovery. My name's Chris Stewart, and over the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to uh, have a bit of a film review with a film that's been doing the rounds lately called What the Bleep, and we're going to talk to a young, fresh, innovative science-type person about their new software that they've been developing, which has got something to do with livestock. And, of course, as we always do every week, we start off with the weekly science news with Helen Sim. Do you remember buckyballs? Discovered quite a few years ago now, they're those soccer ball-shaped molecules made up of 60 carbon atoms. This week, scientists have both some good news about them and some bad. First, the good news. By coating buckyballs in the metal scandium, scientists in the US have been able to make them capture 8% of their weight in hydrogen. That may not sound like a lot, but it could be enough to make hydrogen-powered cars feasible. Hydrogen could be dangerous stuff to have sloshing around loose in your fuel tank, so scientists have been looking at ways to keep it contained in solid materials. Studies say that you can make a safe hydrogen-powered car if the fuel tank can hold more than 6% of its mass in hydrogen. So buckyballs could be the go. Or maybe not. Other US scientists this time from Rice University in Texas, have found that buckyballs dissolve in water. The conventional wisdom was that they didn't. But researcher Joseph Hughes and his colleagues found that buckyballs combine into unusual nano-sized clumps that are about ten times more soluble in water than the individual buckyballs. What's more, when the scientists expose two common types of soil bacteria to these particles the particles inhibited both the growth and respiration of the bacteria. It didn't take much either, as little as five parts in ten million. The findings raised new questions about how nanoparticles, and buckyballs in particular, might behave when released into the environment. Short-sightedness, or myopia, is rising rapidly around the world. In Taiwan, 90% of 18-year-olds are myopic. So are 44% of 12-year-olds in Sweden and about the same percentage in Japan. Myopia has a strong genetic component, but lifestyle plays a part too. Myopia has been rising faster in Asia than in the West and faster in cities than in the countryside. 
The culprit is likely to be television, computers and intensive education, says Dr Barbara Junghans of the University of New South Wales. In fact, anything that requires children to look at things close up for a long time. She says that you get most myopia where you have the highest proportion of people living in high-rise apartment blocks and children are under pressure to achieve academically. Amazingly, Aussie kids seem to be bucking the trend. The rate of childhood myopia here is about a quarter that seen in China, Taiwan and Singapore and half of that in the US. What's more, in a big news study, Dr Junghans and her colleagues have found that the rate of myopia among Sydney school children has barely changed over the last 30 years. The study drew on 2,000 kids from eastern Sydney from a range of ethnic and socioeconomic backgrounds. They found a very slight increase in myopia rates over the last 30 years, but thought that that could be explained just by a shift in the region's ethnic mix. This research was published in the journal BMC Ophthalmology. And for some more good news on the medical front, researchers in Germany have found that shock waves of pressure, the kind that are used to break up kidney stones, can actually help promote bone growth. Doctors who were treating people for kidney stones noticed that the patients who had lots of lithotripsies, that is, shockwave treatments, were showing new bone growth in their pelvises. At first, researchers thought that this was because the high energy was somehow needed to break the bone and then cause it to heal. But recent studies have shown that even low energy levels, which don't damage the bone at all, enhance bone healing. And now the German researchers have found what's happening at the level of the cell. They applied shock waves to fibroblasts, which are cells from soft tissues like muscles and tendons, and to osteoblasts, which are cells that form the bone. A day after the treatment, they found an increase of an important bone growth factor in both types of cells. So the researchers hope that they can turn this finding into a treatment for fractures that don't heal or areas of bone that have died. Yes, that was the Weekly Science News, and this is Discovery, coming to you from 2SER here in Sydney and across Australia, thanks to the Community Broadcasting Network. Well, last year, a Buddhist software millionaire backed a film about modern science and spiritual matters. He and his mates took it to an independent cinema and struck a deal. The film would run for a week, and if they could sell a few thousand tickets, they could keep running for a month or so. Ten million people later, the film is still drawing people to the cinemas and raking in the bucks. The film is What the Bleep Do We Know, a movie about physics, mysticism and Atlantis. Ian Wolfe had a look. What the Bleep Do We Know promises to be an enlightening exploration of the latest in quantum physics and brain science and how they relate to everyday life. What you actually get is a movie that's so bad that, as physicist Wolfgang Pauli once said, it's not even wrong. This is a laugh-out-loud bad movie that uses cheesy TV advertising-style animation and terrible logic to justify pop mysticism in a way that everyone will find offensive. They've written a boring plot about a photographer who's assigned to a Polish wedding. Amanda suffers from clinical depression, and she takes anti-anxiety pills. She spends the movie lurching around, having anxiety attacks and psychedelic hallucinations that serve to illustrate the movie's message of positive thinking. Her adventures are frequently interrupted by people talking to camera in what was intended to be a Greek chorus of commentary, but which frequently had little to do with anything. They'd sometimes say a cool quantum physics fact, like, nothing touches anything, 
and then they show you some graphics showing the electrostatic repulsion between atoms. This is interesting, but it's hardly new science, and they don't go anywhere with it. A boy in a park appears to take her backwards in time with the line, Time is an illusion. Alas, he didn't add, and lunchtime doubly so. And as a result, Amanda is late for her train. The talking heads sometimes talked about physics and sometimes about metaphysics and philosophy. Amanda has a dream about Native Americans and Columbus. The tall sailing ships are literally invisible to all the Native Americans, except for the shamans. The shamans were able to use their gift to notice ripples on the water. And after several weeks of watching the ripples, their brain's neural networks were finally able to give them a shape that they could see. The narrator tells us that when the shamans told the common people, the ships appeared to them suddenly, as if by magic. A talking head tells us that this is because human brains can't see new things, only things that the neural networks have already recognised. If this were true, all anyone would have to do to become invisible would be to disguise themselves as a sailing ship, and people couldn't see you. Australian Aboriginal people portrayed ships in cave paintings. Douglas Adams had a joke about a similar idea he called the somebody else's problem field. You don't get to find out the names and qualifications of the talking heads until the end of the movie. Then you discover the whole film is J.Z. Knight channeling Ramtha. Ramtha, if you looked him up on the internet, is a 35,000-year-old warrior spirit from Atlantis. Knight has been making millions of dollars from channeling his spirit for the last 20 years. All the film producers are disciples of Knight's cult. John Hagelin comes on screen and tells us how transcendental meditation caused crime rates to fall in a city. It turns out he was awarded an Ig Nobel Prize for this work in 1994 because the murder rate actually rose. We're shown the art of Masura Omoto, who tapes words to water bottles and freezes the water and takes photos. The crystal photos appear appropriate for the message, as if the water could read the words. Literate water! What the movie doesn't tell you is that he searches for pretty crystals, that is, it's found art. He doesn't get appropriate ones every time, as the movie says he does. The blonde American woman makes the logical leap that as your body is mostly water, so your body changes in reaction to your thoughts, and you only have to think well to be well. Perhaps not the most sensitive message to have a disabled actress betray. Ms. Knight, pretending to be Ramtha, goes on to tell us, You are a god, responsible for the reality your thoughts bring. Another talking head says there are no bad thoughts, no god to read them and keep score. Ramtha says, don't be arrogant about understanding God. You are an emotion addict. Then there is a wedding party scene with silly graphics about teenagers searching for sexual partners or foxes who put out, as the screen says. Knight, pretending to be Ramtha, tells us that everything known in ancient times was wrong, so everything now known is also wrong. That certainly applies to the factoids in the film, like peptides are the basic unit of consciousness. One talking head creates his day by magical thinking. He turns out to be a chiropractor. Rantha takes most of the screen time, as you'd expect for a cult propaganda piece. Physicist David Albert from Columbia University was very unhappy with the quotes from him, as they were edited out of context and missed out that he disagreed with the film. He says that if he'd realised how he'd been used, he would never have agreed to be filmed. What the Bleep reminds me of the kind of cult movie classic that Ed Wood used to make with The Ghoul Goes West where Ed Wood used the famous Hollywood horror actor Bella Lugosi because the actor was so down on his luck they had no other work. The Ramtha School of Enlightenment have Marley Martin, the Oscar award-winning deaf actress who played Joey Lucas in The West Wing, shoehorned into a part that clearly wasn't written for her. 
At the end of the film, she throws away her prescription pills because she's created a reality where she doesn't need them. An irresponsible message that's the whole point of the film. My nomination for the Ig Nobel Awards. Jeez, Ian, tell us what you really think about it. Ian Wolfe there, not recommending a pop mystical film that pretends to know more than you do. One star worthy of mocking. What, what the bleep is showing at select cinemas may be near you. We don't really care. Back to the 70s 
That funky little tune was a track called Sauvé by Andrew Bird. You're listening to Discovery, the national radio show, brought to you across this wide brown land by the Community Radio Network. The livestock industry is a major export earner for Australia. It also faces constant threat from livestock diseases. Richard Shepherd, a veterinarian with the Australian Biosecurity Cooperative Research Centre for Emerging Infectious Diseases, or the A-B-C-R-C-E-I-D for short, has developed computer software to help livestock producers identify diseases in their animals. He's a finalist in this year's Fresh Innovators competition for early career innovators. Here he is speaking with David Huang about his software. We've developed a system that helps producers, uh, cattle producers in, at the moment, northern Australia, help to um, investigate disease within their own herds. What spurred you to design this system? Um, the problem, the problem is multiple. Um, we export most of our primary produce to countries like Japan and the United States, and they require a lot of assurity that we don't have certain diseases. And the other issue that we have is that we have in these extensive areas of Australia uh, a shortage of veterinarians and systems that don't use veterinarians a lot. So we had to get new ways of gather, gathering information about disease status in these herds and these animals. And can you explain in a, in a bit more detail how this program works? Like how does a farmer use it? How the program is designed to work is if the producer sees an animal that is sick and they're not sure what's going on, this computer program stores about a thousand diseases in the database and what the producer does is it enters the one or two very obvious signs that the animal has. They include things like lameness or, or coughing etc and then the, the program goes on to ask questions. It's a bit like going to the doctor when, you, when you're feeling sick and you tell the doctor that I've um, got a headache and a sore throat and the doctor then may start thinking you may have flu symptoms and ask you if you've got joint pain etc and to which you answer yes, no. The program gets the information from the producer and then compares it to the database of disease and says, these 15 diseases could possibly explain these signs, but if I ask these four or five questions, I'll get some more information and be able to clarify it a bit better. So I just ask those questions in a process that goes to it, back and forwards, and as a result, we get a lot more clear information about what the possible diseases are and we get an excellent description of, of how the animals are sick and what they look like. And currently what do producers do when they have a sick animal? Well, a lot of the times it depends on the scale of the operations. A lot of the times they, they know what's going on but when they don't they'll often ask other vet, vets if they use vets or, or have access to a vet. They'll ask their neighbours and they'll also um, undertake things like, uh, you know, maybe if I have a look here or, or, or get a bit more information. They use a lot of people to get this information. What this program does is it sort of like tries to become a bit of a one-stop shop to allow them to do that. And currently what's, what stage of commercial development is this software at? Well, we're not commercially developing the program at, at, per se. What we're trying to do is develop this for industry good. So um, the idea that we have is that we may be able to have this tool which will, all producers will be able to use or will be able to use it in Australia to allow us to demonstrate that our product, our beef products, our milk products, whatever we want to use it for, have a high level of safety in terms of the product is safe in terms of disease for eating, etc., 
and therefore that's the commercial commerciality of it all. It's used at an industry level. But is it currently being applied? It's being used at the moment in a pilot study and, at the, and what we're trying to do at this stage is then get it up to the stage where we can use it on state levels and national levels and in terms of, this is, comes back to your question of commerciality, use of the program will be free for producers because what we really want is to gather that information so we can use it to demonstrate to the world. So we don't want producers to use a pay systems. This system, when it's developed in its final state, will be a free service and as more producers use it, they'll actually get, gather our evidence to a, uh, and we'll have more evidence at a higher level that, to demonstrate what we want to do, which is to show that we have safe products and, at the worst-case scenario, detect diseases as they occur earlier. Richard Shepherd from the Australian Biosecurity CRC speaking with David Huang. 60 second science. As hairdresser Philip McCroy watched an oil-drenched otter being rescued from the midst of an oil slick, he thought, if animal hair can trap and hold spilt oil, then why can't human hair? So McCroy tried a simple experiment. He stuffed one kilo of human hair into a pair of his wife's old stockings forming a ring with the hosiery. Then, filling his son's wading pool with a mixture of water and motor oil, he put the hair-filled ring in the middle. The results were astounding. When the ring was removed, no visible trace of oil was left in the water. Further research, conducted by NASA, showed a similar result. Only a fraction of percent of oil remained in the water after being passed through the hair ring. Even better, McCroy's method is cheap costing just 50 cents for each litre of oil mopped up. Conventional methods cost up to $2.50 per litre. With tonnes of it cut every day and most of it going to landfill, human hair could prove to be the solution to mopping up oil spills. Miriam Beniakar from Masada College. 60 Second Science is brought to you by high school students enrolled in the University of Sydney's course Problem Solving and Communication in Science. And lastly, on Discovery, we've got a a little bit of uh, uh, late-breaking news. This one, uh, the story that I found at uh, the Nature website, which is www.nature.com for all of you science freaks out there. Listen, if I were to ask you guys, um, what's the thing that separates human beings, in fact, pretty much any living creature, from robots? Okay, robots are taking our place in in uh, industry. They're, they're you know putting people out of work by building cars, that kind of thing. But what's the one thing that we can do that they can't? Any ideas? We can reproduce. We can reproduce. Nice work, Ian. You weren't looking over my shoulder when I was reading that before at all, were you? Um, We have an article here about a robot that's been built over in the States, of course. A guy called Hod Lipson at Cornell University has led this piece of research. A robot that is actually able to replicate itself. Now, if you think about it, Think about down to the the simplest, you know, single-celled organisms. The one thing that makes them living creatures, really, is the fact that they're able to take stuff from the environment around them and basically, you know, build it up out of of Lego blocks and build another version of themselves and kick it off out into the environment. So we've heard about these sorts of things before in terms of robots. This is one of the first times where anyone's ever actually built a robot, which is able to actually go out and grab the bits and build another version of itself and say, go, off, do the same again, which is kind of a nice idea. But what it makes me wonder is, first of all, 
where is this going? Ian, what's the, what's the future of self-replicating robots? Well, von Neumann had the idea that you could send these off into space. They could go to an asteroid <clears throat> or a planet and reproduce and then build factories, mine the place and ship the products back off to Earth with infinite wealth being produced for us just to sit back and wait for it to come. So in, in principle, we could just sort of send one of these things up or maybe a few of them and they could go off and find the materials that they need and start building themselves and then send it back to us. Exactly. Cool. Nice one. Isn't there also a, a nanotechnology application that I've heard about where you could build tiny little machines, which you could then inject into the body, and they could go off and reproduce themselves throughout the body and go and find things like cancer cells and um, you know where they, where they need to build more of themselves. They can go out and do that and then... Uh, destroy the cancer cell, and once they've they've done all of that, then they can sort of take themselves apart again. And you've got this sort of body full of these these tiny little robots, which are able to to go around reproducing when they need to. That's the idea. There's activists who are protesting at the moment because they're concerned about the danger of pink goo. That once you've sent these pink little goo. yes, once nice. these little nano robots go off and multiply, they won't stop just because they've finished the job. They'll ignore your command to disassemble themselves. Instead, they'll just turn everything on the planet into more of themselves until we drown. Hmm. So we don't really want to be letting these things loose into the environment just in case they take over the entire world. So let's just have a bit of a reality check here. Are we anywhere near unlimited wealth coming to us from asteroids across the cosmos or flip side to the coin, everyone in the world being taken over by the dreaded pink goo? Well, the robot over in the States, let me just describe it to you. We have four cubic bricks, basically, stuck together by, by magnets, and uh, the, the, the robotic pieces that join them together are able to allow this stack of bricks to twist and turn and bend over and hop about and so on. What it's able to do is bend over, drop one of the bricks next to it, and that becomes the seed for the new baby robot. The parent robot then reaches over to the side, grabs another brick, brings it around, puts it on top of the baby... And then once the baby gets to a certain height, it's able to bend around and help and grab bits and pieces as well. But that's about all it does. It's able to bend around and make another copy of itself, but only if you actually feed it the bricks. Not only that, it's following a very, very closely, carefully defined set of robotic DNA called a computer program. It's not evolving in any way, shape or form. It's not able to hop out there and find the blocks itself. So this is... A really intriguing step down robotic self-replication, but I don't really think we have to worry about the pink goo just yet. That's it for Discovery for another week. If you've enjoyed the show as much as we've enjoyed making it, and we have enjoyed making it, haven't we? It's been a heck of a show. Um, if you've enjoyed it, then drop us a line at discovery at 2ser.com. 
Putting in the hard yards for the show this week were Helen Sim, Ian Wolfe and David Huang. David also sat behind the desk and pushed all the brightly coloured buttons in roughly the right order all the way up here in the clouds on level 26 of the UTS Tower in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Discovery is broadcast nationally by the Community Radio Network and we're very grateful. I'm Chris Stewart. Please join us all again next week for another 30 minutes of sciencey goodness on Discovery. Little way, but I miss you.